What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images, where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear and a handful of dust. The Wasteland, T.S. Eliot. Welcome to Quirks of Creation. everybody and welcome back to another episode of quirks of creation i am your host jess holmes and joining me as always is elise Haley. hello Woo-hoo! <laughs> you're all better i am feeling much much better thank you unfortunately for everybody my voice is back <laughs> i think so, that's fortunate go. for me because i'm <laughs> gonna need a break talking in between all of this but i'm Got so it. glad you're better <laughs> <clears throat> me too i'm human again and I'm ready to discuss all the things. Wait, you mean you weren't a human before? I'm pretty sure I was an NPC on Monday or like that whole weekend week. I just was not me. You were a giant <laughs> bruise. Uh-uh. Yeah. I was bruised and battered, but it's all good. But you are good now. Yeah. And I see a very pertinent comment in the chat saying how rad my shirt is. It's so awesome. Yes. Yay. And if you want this awesome dragon shirt, you can go to hawkhoundmedia.myshopify.com and go to the Quirks of Creation shop and get a super super cool dragon shirt just for yourself. Mm-hmm. You can rock it almost as good as Jess does. Oh, thanks. Almost. <laughs> oh, Hicktown honey blaming the ginger DNA. Dang. I mean, we're coming out listen. strong. <laughs> PJ has more of that than Elise does. That's obviously right. he actually obviously. looks like a ginger. You don't even look like I a ginger. hide it. <laughs> <laughs> I hide it. No, I love it. That's awesome. It we'll just blame that all day. Yep. Uh, big shout out to our buddy Shield Wolf over <sighs> from the Rumble chat last time. They left an awesome comment that just really touched me. They said, you guys have such a good show. It reminds me of a more biblically accurate version of Mysterious Universe. I always keep your episodes lined up in my schoolwork study podcast stream. Thank you for your content. Thank you so much, Shield Wolf, for your <laughs> lovely com- comment. That was awesome. I don't know if I've ever said it on this show. But I am the biggest Mysterious Universe fan ever. Really? I oh love gosh. those guys. Like, you they, just got I, compared to Mysterious Universe. How do you feel? I know. Oh, I can't tell you. I don't know. I'm shaking. I'm shaking. I'm shook. Uh, I'm shook. That was awesome. You're shooketh. I'm shooketh. You see what you did, Shield Wolf? You shooketh yeah. Elise. Thank you. Ah, I loved it. I loved it too. Thank you guys so much for your comments. Don't forget to comment on the stream or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and your comment just might get read live on the show. 
you could be as cool as everybody else. That's Just right. Saying. <laughs> <laughs> but the chat is popping tonight, and that's because tonight we have a very heavy topic to talk about. We do. We do. And before we get started, I want to give a pretty heavy disclaimer. We are going to be talking about some very heavy and very serious stuff. We're going to be talking about mental health. Uh, so this, I I want people to use caution when listening to this episode. Be careful who you play it around. This episode is obviously not for kids um, because we are going to be delving into just like some dark and heavy stuff. And I, I want people to be aware of that, mindful of that as they come into this episode and not get like blindsided when we say certain things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I think it's good that we kind of give everybody a heads up. Like this is a deep, heavy subject that I think people unfortunately are too scared to talk about most of the time. We're going to tackle it head on and in our quirky way. <laughs> and, you know, it. it's still going to be us. It's still going to be our show but it's just this one is just kind of like yeah maybe not the kids if yeah. they listen maybe not yeah. this time yeah. not this time yeah um but yeah so as the title of the episode suggested we're talking about the over medicalization of america and i just want to give you guys some statistics that i put pulled off all of these three-letter government agency websites who are really invested in mental health. One in five Americans suffer from some sort of mental illness. Anxiety disorders are the highest reported mental health issue in the United States, with 42.5 million Americans claiming to suffer from this illness. Uh, Plenty of teenagers start showing symptoms of mental illness by age 14, about one in four American adults, just looking at the adult population, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year, and one in 10 will suffer from a depressive illness such as major depression or bipolar disorder. Uh, The mental health crisis accounts for 60 million visits to primary care and 6 million to ER visits annually. And the stats just get worse and worse. I think the last two I'll read off because I could sit here and read these all night because of how intense and how numerous they are. The 20% of all teens suffer from depression before they reach adulthood and the rates of suicide have increased by 24% since Mm. 2012. That is going from 40,000 a year to 49,000 a year. At least those are some heavy stats. Those are heavy stats. And uh, it breaks my heart and it's difficult to, to hear those things and remember that they're all human beings that are affected yeah. so heavily. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, I will be, I will be honest. I'm, I'm one of them. I was diagnosed with a lot of, um, well, not a lot of these things, but I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and ADHD ADHD recently, which that I know we'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. And it's going to be, uh, my stories are, are silly because I'm yeah. silly, but there, you are not, I mean, you <laughs> can be silly, but your stories aren't silly. Right. Um, so it's something that I, i feel very, um, passionate about as yeah. I, I know you do too. So I think it's just going to be a really good conversation and it's sad that there's so many people who are dealing with this 
It is really sad. And I feel like that's why I felt this, I don't know, I don't want to say pressure because it's not like you or anybody was pressuring me. It's just like, I felt like I had to talk about this yes. because I also have a very personal interaction with these topics as well. And so this just weighed heavy on our hearts. So it feels pertinent to talk about. And obviously is very close to the heart of Americans and just people all across the world. People are suffering. And so let's see if we can get to the heart of that. Yes. Um, one of the ways people have talked about mental health is through a very neurological conversation. And the primary way they discuss it is by talking about neurotransmitters. Everybody, I think, who's ever talked about mental health has heard of serotonin. Uh, if you don't know what serotonin is, serotonin is a neurotransmitter, a brain messenger chemical that carries signals between nerve cells in the brain and is thought to be involved in regulating many functions from influencing emotions, mood, memory, and even sleep. Uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting yeah. one because I take melatonin to go to sleep. I'm like, melatonin, serotonin. Oh, okay. All right. That ends. Yeah. <laughs> but just like the big background history on our special molecule serotonin, we've got this very Italian scientist whose name I am sure to butcher, Vittor Vittorio Erspammer. I tried to look up... <laughs> His name pronunciation earlier. Love it. And I butchered it like I did. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, but this guy, Dr. Air Spammer, uh, first discovered serotonin, which he actually initially named enteramine in 1935 because he demonstrated that it was produced by enterchromaffin cells. And these cells are basically in your intestine. Yeah. And I was like, uh, that's a weird uh, and also kind of amazing because I don't know about y'all. I love food, especially delicious food. So, of course, I'm going to yes. get a big old serotonin hit by eating delicious food. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and a big thing lately that I've been getting into in the past few years, like the gut brain connection. Oh, yes. And Definitely. how your gut health really affects your mental health, which um, I would love for us to do an episode on sometime because yes. I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think Jess might totally prove me wrong because she has this really awesome way of taking us down this path and you think it's going one way and bam, she hits you with all the details <laughs> and the science and you're like, ah, oh, dang it. I thought I knew and I didn't, which I love. <laughs> it it's going to be an interesting conversation tonight because, yeah. oh, man, oh, man, wait, just hang on tight, guys, because I want to lay the groundwork for the history of serotonin. So we got this enteramine hanging around in our gut. And actually, it wasn't until 1948 when the Cleveland Clinic was doing research on these molecules and found serotonin in platelets and found that it was involved in vasoconstriction, basically uh, helping Phyllis facilitate blood flow, decreasing blood loss, uh, making sure your blood actually clots uh, in, in the good kind oh, of good way. Things. Like if you yeah. start bleeding, not like a blood clot near your heart, right? Uh, but the good kind that you actually care about. And so mm -hmm. they actually named this molecule serotonin, which is Latin for vasoconstrictor. Again, one of those random things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
but it wasn't until 1952 that it was confirmed that enteramine and serotonin were the exact same molecule. Ta-da! Same thing. Yay. If we're going to go for the chemistry definition, its official chemical name is 5-hydroxytryptamine or 5-HT, but everybody calls it serotonin, so we'll just call it serotonin. I wonder why. I wonder why. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) I'm not going to break out the biochemistry. Well, there's going to be a lot of biochemistry tonight, but I'm not going to do like the IUPAC nomenclature. My students in school get that enough. I don't need to torture you guys with it, too. I love it. (laughs) Um, One of these days. One of these days. Well, we'll just do a whole episode on IUPAC nomenclature, and I will get a kick out of it, and everybody will be bored to tears. And it will be great. And it will be wonderful. Jess will love every minute of it. I will love every minute of it. <laughs> uh, but serotonin is basically in this family of monoamines, which includes molecules like no- noepinephrine, dopamine, and histamine. So they all have similar functional groups. They behave sort of similarly, which is why they are called monoamines. They all have a monoamine group. Um, And so together, serotonin is used in three main parts. 90% of it is used in your gut. Gut health. Gut health. It's important. It's important. Just throwing it out there. Insane. Like when I was first digging into this, I'm like, oh, I'm going to find all of this information about how serotonin is just basically in your brain. No, 90% in your gut, 8% in your platelets. The remaining 2% is what's in your central nervous system. That's insane. I would have, I would not have put the numbers like that. Me either. You know? Yeah. That low in the brain. That's crazy. Yeah. It, It was insane. And so because serotonin was found so little in the nervous system, I got really curious then how we even began to found it there. So please join me on the rabbit hole on how we found serotonin in the brain. Here we go. Here we go. Up on the magic school bus into the brain. Um, <laughs> let's meet our first scientist, Betty McTwarg. Uh, She began studying a phenomenon in mollusks. If you guys don't know what a mollusk is, it's basically this like, how, how would you describe a mollusk? It's like, uh, it's like a sea snail, but not like you yeah. think of Barry and SpongeBob. He's a mollusk, but that's not quite it. I'm bad at animals. Know. Hold on. Anyway, sea I'm creatures. Gonna... They're like barnacles that cling to the sides yeah. of ships. A, sea, a snail. That's yeah. a sea snail. That's a, a good. Snail. Yeah. Uh, they have this thing that they do called catch. So that little foot that they have, that little slidey thing that they slide on, uh, will grab like the muscles will constrict and catch onto things. Uh, And so in 1948, our girl Betty here was studying the catch muscle, how it contracted and resisted stretching long after periods of excitation had passed. Like if you tried to pull it off, how it wouldn't just like stretch its muscle out and then be like all droopy and pulled apart. Um, And I, I stay with me, stay with me. It's, particularly convenient to investigate it in the basal retractor muscle of the edible muscle. So the ones that you would actually eat at like a seafood place where they have you eat all kinds of gross stuff. Um, And the The French, the French, you know, French, 
Actually, I think it's probably more like Asiatic cultures that eat uh, these yeah. weird seafood things. Yeah. But anyway, um, yes. so she was researching these guys and found in that catch muscle neurotransmitters. Hmm. I know. I was like, okay, okay. Okay. Was she looking for those specifically? No, she was just okay. trying to she figure just... out how the muscle worked. And she saw the muscle was contracting and releasing you using neurotransmitters. I was like, okay. Okay. Where are you going, Betty? Um, at this time in biochemical history, neurotransmitter theory was still pretty controversial. And only acetylcholine, which is heavily used in both voluntary and involuntary muscle movement, and norepinephrine, which is involved in alertness and attention, had received any sort of recognition. Uh, and by 1951, she had identified the contracting neurotransmitter as acetylcholine, but could not find the relaxing one. So you had to have one that attached and then relaxed. Right. Right. So you had to have two separate chemicals. So she was looking for the one that allowed it to relax. Norepinephrine was there, but it was only weakly active. And so she kept doing these investigations. She wrote a bunch of papers and she found serotonin and the mollusk mm. as the one that allowed it to relax. Okay. Okay. So it was like heavily involved in muscle movement. And so our guy, Dr. Erspammer, the Italian guy from earlier, started releasing this crazy series of papers that showed enteramine, aka serotonin, was found in octopus salivary glands. I don't know what it was with biochemists and studying sea creatures. They were just into it. Right. That was just the thing. Right. I'm just amazed at the connections they're making. Right. You know, to not be so narrow-minded, just looking. I'm looking at sea creatures. This doesn't, you know, I don't know. We're looking at sea creatures and somehow this is going to connect to humans. Yeah. This is the thing. This is why different branches of science need to actually <laughs> talk to each other. Yeah. Yes. Instead of just being siloed into their little catacombs of professionalism and uh, perfection. I don't even know what you call expertise. Yeah. The little silos of expertise and not talking to one another because it was only once these ideas were combined all together that there was a connection between not only serotonin use in muscle relaxation, but serotonin being used in the brain. And so Betty and her Mentor, Dr. John Welsh, were putting out all of these papers, and they got rejected everywhere. No way. Yeah, because they were like, nah, you quacky. Right. <laughs> You're not quirky, you quacky. Yeah, you quacky. Because, again, at this time, you know, 1950s, neurotransmitters were like, nah, that's crazy science. You can't even prove that. Which, to be fair, I don't know how they're proving it. Right. It's basically like saying, I found this chemical in the brain, and this is how I'm hypothesizing it works. Yeah. In the 1950s, because they don't have the instrumentation to prove it. So I'm not actually super shocked by this development, because in some ways, the scientific community is rigid in its beliefs. It's immovable. And some people would say, just like totally immovable. Right. Um, This has been true since Galileo suggested that the universe was heliocentric rather than geocentric. So, I mean. It's been this way forever. (laughs) 
But I get conflicted about that because depending yeah. on application, this could be a good or a bad thing. It, it, two things can be good. It's just the situation. Yeah, it's very situational. Like if they're too open to things, then they're also opening themselves up to falsification of data, bad studies, COVID vaccine. Oh, COVID. What? <sighs> what? Did you have a tickle in your throat? Yeah, I think I did. That was <gasps> weird. Oh. Or they could shut people down like Galileo. So you get the 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 bad and the bad, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> We're human and we are prone to error. <laughs> so here we are. And extremes. So. Boy. <laughs> so there's that. So yeah. Betty comes along and was also convinced that invertebrate neurotransmitters would also apply to vertebrates, a.k.a. mammals, humans. So not just sea creatures, but could be extrapolated to people. So she approached this guy, Irving Page, at the Cleveland Clinic for support. Dr. Page immediately agreed, although he said that he didn't believe serotonin would actually be found in the brain. But he was like, here, I'm just going to give you all this money in this lab space. I don't believe you, but go for it. Right. right. Well, that's still Dr. You're Page. generous. <laughs> Did you really not believe her? I yeah. don't know. So there's that. Um, so yeah. she, this is what I struggle with in biochemical testing because she did do animal studies. And I know we have to study animals. And I'm like, okay, lab rats. Rabbits makes me a little uncomfortable. Now you're starting to do research on dogs. Okay, I need to shut this down. Like you, you got to stop. That's where I draw the line. It, it just frustrates me. I don't oh, I like it. it. No. I get it. Yeah, it's a not dogs, but animal testing in a lot of ways is a necessary evil. But yeah. that doesn't. They do lab rats for a reason, right? Now you know, right? You say now, but they, uh, you know, well, what? I'm not going to hypothesize right, about that. Right. That's what we're told. We're not. That's what we're told. <laughs> Just doing what we're told. <laughs> yep. Um. <laughs> So I'm not going to talk about how she came upon these tissues that she was sampling or anything like that because I don't want to know. So I'm just going to say she basically got these brain tissues, grounded them up, extracted them, and ta-da, there is the serotonin. Hey, there it is. There it is. How does that relate to mental health? Good job, Betty. You found serotonin in the brain. Now what? Now what? Now what? Where are you taking us? Let's go to Staten Island Seaview Hospital because it's almost Halloween and we need a good mental asylum or sanatorium to look at. Absolutely. Let's take a look at it. Uh, if, if it's October and you don't bring up a state hospital mental institution, are you, are you even talking? Right. <laughs> are, you, are you even saying anything? Anyway. Oh, that looks pretty. Not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looks like now. I suspect that is not mm -hmm. what it looked like then, but I mm -hmm. could only find photos of it from now. So here we go. It is now abandoned, and it was a sanatorium for tuberculosis, like mm -hmm. all abandoned hospitals are. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. But at this particular hospital, they were experimenting with this drug called apronazid. I'm saying that wrong, but... Who can correct you? <laughs> It proniazid. Yeah, because it has the azide sort of 
suffix. So yeah. proniazid. Okay. I, I can pronounce things. Okay. Yeah. So they were trying out this drug because they thought it would have this strong antibacterial action against the tuberculosis bacterium. Um, and so, okay, cool. Awesome. But here's the thing that the doctors didn't expect. Their tuberculosis, tuberculosis patients started getting up from their sick beds, fever free, and their yeah. appetites came back. They had renewed energy and mm. vitality. Like these once gravely ill patients started being euphoric and dancing in the hallways. Awesome. From a tuberculosis drug? Right. Euphoria. Like, what did they give them? Yeah. LSD or something? Just, <laughs> just plain old Coke. Yep. Here you go. Boop. No, just... <laughs> Epronai is a wonder drug. Yes. So that's what's going on there. On the flip side, a bit of a darker phenomenon for some doctors who are treating patients who have high blood pressure. Many doctors were prescribing reserpine. Um, however, some doctors noticed that their patients who were taking this medication started to spiral into a deep depression. There was one reported patient who started to withdraw from the world. He was a retired police officer. And all of a sudden, while he was on this blood pressure medication, he no longer enjoyed gardening or watching television. And he'd wake up in the early hours of the morning, just like filled with, excuse me, dark, dark thoughts. Aww. So I very, very sad. Yeah. And this is the, qu both of these cases started to happen almost simultaneously. So as one drug plunged people into a deep depression, another rendered them euphoric and physicians and scientists began to posit that perhaps depression arises from some sort of chemical imbalance in the brain. And this is where we start getting the idea of chemical imbalance theory. So by the late 1950s, after a handful of studies suggested it improved mood in depressed people, physicians began prescribing it off-label for depression. And of course, that came to an end when the FDA pulled it off the shelves because of serious side effects like hypertension and liver toxicity. Oh, you might, you need your liver. Yeah, you kind of need that. You kind of need all that, all those things. So as bad as that situation was, it did kind of hint at this possibility that there's more going on in the mind than we truly understand. And this was the first clue that neurotransmitters could be linked to a condition like depression. And then enters the scene, Dilworth Wayne Woolley, Dr. Woolley. Dr. Woolley. I like your name already, dude. He's got a good name. Mm -hmm. And he has a very interesting history because he, he's basically watching all of this off to the sidelines, watching all of this research happen around him. And he was very inspired by Betty Twarg's w work, who we talked about earlier, and Alfred Hoffman's discovery of lysergic acid diethylamide, a.k.a. LSD. LSD. Good old LSD. <laughs> Good old LSD, making yeah. you see all the colors of the rainbow and all some the that things. aren't there. <laughs> yeah. Hearing, seeing, all the things. Feeling colors, you know, yeah. all that fun yeah. stuff. I'd actually love to go into an episode about LSD because this guy, Alfred Hoffman, was basically playing with organic molecules like Legos. He'd take lysergic acid and just be like, let me put a new functional group on here and see what it does. 
What is and by his what 25th iteration of that, he had a diethylamine, a derivative of ammonia, and that's what gave him LSD. Wow. I wow. know. And yeah. for those of you who are like, I have no idea the words that are coming out of her mouth. Let me just show you a picture of serotonin compared to LSD. Uh, I, I'm sorry, audio listeners, if you can't see the two molecules. I think most people have seen serotonin perhaps somewhere. LSD is kind of similar in that it has this amide group. It has this amine group. Um, so they have kind of similar things going on in their life. Yeah. So I could see why he'd be interested in both. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're like, uh, no. Like, no. But I will take your word for it. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I love it. Um. And it's kind of funny, too, because he actually believed that serotonin would be an anti-metabolite of LSD. So if you think about how our body metabolizes something, uh, he believed that LSD would bind to the same receptor as serotonin and block it from being metabolized and vice versa. Hmm. Hmm. So in like a, a good way, it wouldn't be metabolized, like it would last longer the serotonin or meta- it would be it wouldn't be metabolized so it wouldn't be abs- absorbed does that make sense it does it does because there's two ways to think about it and we'll talk about how the body processes serotonin a little bit deeper but the idea is is that our neurons are passing these chemical signals back and forth right using serotonin and well, we'll just talk about it now oh, one no no you're good uh one end of the cell will pick up the serotonin. So here, I'll pull up the picture for us. There we go. All right. So we have our base receptor and the one that is passing the serotonin molecules. The way I think of it is it's like a game of telephone. Each can in the game of telephone is the ending of a nerve cell. And between the two nerve cells, instead of having a string, you send chemicals back and forth between receptors on the nerve ending. And so once the chemical is received by the nerve ending, the chemical information is translated into electrical information, which stimulates the desired outcome across the brain and the central nervous system. But instead of being just like one game of telephone, it's like billions and trillions of games of telephone, all communicating ah. in unified, perfect harmony to allow for the fine-tuned regulation and function of our bodies. Yes. Holy cow. I have a whole side tangent about that and like how just that part of our brain is so finely tuned that how could that happen by accident? I was just going to say that. <laughs> But it all happened by accident. Isn't that awesome? It all happened by accident. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's insane. The intricacies and the things we don't even know yet about the brain. It's so incredible. It's so incredible. The more we find out, the more we're like, we don't know anything. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I know. Um, I'll just read you guys this verse from Hebrews uh, because this is the verse I have all of my science students memorize because it just reminds me of things like this, how beautiful everything God gave us is and how little we understand it. So Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, like 
we can't even fathom all the things that he's created. And this is just what we understand now. Yeah. We don't understand the brain. Right. Exactly. This is a small bit. And even this is, to say we understand it, I think there's still a lot we don't. Oh, man. Even just in this little. Even just in this little thing. Area. Yeah. Yep. It's crazy. So to <laughs> answer your question, I know I'm going on. It, no. It kind of needs to be set up a little bit. So these yeah. neurotransmitters don't just work on their own. There's a key gene for this process uh, that I'll just call HCERT. I'm not going to go through its long name because it's too long. Um, which has the instructions for making a serotonin transporter. And the transporter's job is basically to sop up all the extra serotonin after a nerve spits it towards the next nerve cell in line. So in some people, it's thought that the H-cert might work too fast and sop up serotonin before it reaches the other cell. So it cleans the, up too quickly. It cleans up too quickly. Yeah. So if LSD is binding to the receptor instead of serotonin, then that's the information that the brain is picking up instead of the serotonin. So it's actually kind of acting like H-cert in a way. It's blocking serotonin from being taken Okay. Out. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So just to add to that, I guess, or to, to make it more palatable for myself. Yes, absolutely. So going from one to the other, and it's a lot, it's like, um, I want to say like a water, if you will, like mm -hmm. it's going across. And so what did you say was cleaning it up? The H-cert. Yep. The H-cert yes. is what cleans it up before it can reach the yeah. other nerve ending. So if it was like a puddle at the top and it was going downhill, for mm -hmm. example, and either the H-cert like cleans up the mess that's left behind, the extra water right. left behind, or it gets in front of it and gets it all before it gets down there. Yeah. Of it's kind of like... You know how you'd be mopping the floor yeah. or whatever, and you want to get to the other side of the kitchen where, like, the bad mess is. <laughs> and then, like, your dog runs in front of you and just, like, makes it worse. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's like that. Dogs. I love it. Dogs. That's better. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's after lots and lots of research. They yes. kind of figured out. Uh, that this is what was happening. This guy, Eli Lilly, set out to finding the compound that could selectively target the brain serotonin communications without interfering without other neurological or hormonal pathways. And in 1974, his scientists created flotexin, flow, flox, I'm so bad at these names, floxetine, a compound that blocks the removal of serotonin. So basically it's blocking H-cert from sopping it all up and is only allowing serotonin to move in between the synapses. And this was considered to be the first class of antidepressants because by this point, Dr. Woolley and his buddy David Shaw had shown that there was a strong connection between serotonin and uh Mental health because they like mood booster. Yeah, you know, well, it's that's not, not a just good way a mood, it, but I hate more. talking about this because I don't even know why they thought to do this. But basically, they got the bodies of people who had taken their own lives and looked at the serotonin levels in their brains and found that it was consistently lower than 
people who hadn't. Mm -hmm. So their hypothesis, which seems like a logical hypothesis, was that depression that would lead to suicide was connected to a lower serotonin uptake of the neurotransmitters than considered normal. Right. I have not to delve into this too, too much or to get off topic, but this just hit me. They were looking at deceased, obviously, and they had taken this samples after mm-hmm. people had passed. Yep. Could that have depleted because they passed away? Do we know? Does that? I okay. think that's a fabulous question. <laughs> Honestly, a fabulous question. Okay. Uh, because no, you can't know. Right. Right. Um, and that, I don't even know if they mentioned that as a possible error. I personally would think it's a possible error. I, I guess they're under the assumption that when you die, whatever chemicals were in your brain at that time are just still there. Remain. Yeah. As, uh, because right. they got to them very quickly mm. after the fact. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they'd been passed for, Gone for days long. and years. Yeah. Right. They they got to him pretty quick. Gotcha. How they f- figured out how to hook all of that up, I don't want to try and consider. Right. right. But again, that that's what they figured out. And that's yes. basically what's perpetuated the notion throughout psychology that serotonin is connected to mental illness. And so you have this guy, Eli Lilly, who starts putting out uh, this first iteration of an SSRI. And so the idea of SSRIs is that in order to allow the nerve to recover and send the next message, the body has to allow serotonin to actually make it and slow down CERT. So SSRI slow down the collection of serotonin by transporters like CERT and the process of returning the serotonin to the end of the neuron it comes from. And so SSRIs inhibit CERT at the presynaptic axon terminal and by inhibiting it, an increased amount of serotonin basically builds up between the synaptic clefts and can stimulate postsynaptic receptors for an extended period. That's a lot of science mumbo jumbo that basically says serotonin stays in the space between the cells longer and increases the chance that it will make it to the next neuron. Gotcha. Yeah. And that would be picked up and give you the happies. And do the things it's supposed to do. And do the things it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The question then is, does it work? Does it work? And the thing is, we don't actually know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I saw bookstore Thor say uh, Floexine is the generic name for Prozac. Yes. This yes. was the first, itera- first iteration of Prozac. So... After 60 years of research, we still do not even truly understand the role that serotonin fully plays in neurochemistry, much less all of biology. I listed out what we understand about it at this point. Right. But that's just what we understand at this point. (laughs) And it hasn't changed much in these 60 years? It's changed so much that people have figured that these biochemists are like, oh, we don't know anything. Gotcha. Wow. 
Right. We know so much that we don't know. That we don't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's insane. So let me just give you the rundown. They have not even been able to conclusively prove that a decrease in serotonin is what causes the SADS. (laughs) Nope. I don't, I don't, okay. I feel like this has gone full circle. So, you know, it starts off as like something you don't talk about. And I know we will talk about more of that in a bit. But it starts off as something like you don't talk about it. You're sad. Rub some dirt on it. Grow a pair and deal with it. It's like the attitude. And then, um, you know, I feel like at least in my world, I don't know, it's become more of this like it's a chemical imbalance. It's not your fault. It's not. And I'm not saying it is anybody's fault or that that whatever. I'm just saying it has become more accepted. And I think people talk about it more because it's like, oh, well, it's just a chemical imbalance. Like right. it's a, you can't you control can't it. it. It's a chemical imbalance. And again, I'm not arguing that, but it's just, and now it's like, well, maybe. Right. We don't really know. We don't really know. <sighs> uh, okay. So I'm about to throw a lot of articles at you guys. Bear with me. So uh, here's Ready, set, one go. of our first... Well, I had all of this set up. Said, go. go. (laughs) It's too tiny. This paper is made for ants. (laughs) I love it. I think I had a different window with this pulled up in here. Let's try this one instead. Share this time. Okay. Okay. That one looks slightly better, but not really. Okay. Anyway, um, Simon Young from McGill University and his team conducted thorough depletion studies to see if they could artificially induce patients with depression through the lowering of serotonin levels. So they're like, I am going to artificially lower your serotonin using acute tryptophan depletion. This is a technique that has been used extensively to study the effect of low serotonin in the human brain and can actually be seen in a person's diet. So by altering a person's diet, you can lower neurological serotonin levels and you should, in theory, see the onset of depressive symptoms. Right. In theory. In theory. And they didn't. But they didn't. Yep. And (sighs) his teams weren't the only ones engaging in these studies. Across eight separate studies, there was no observable trend or link between the lowering of serotonin and the onset of depressive symptoms. Okay. One thing I'm hung up on. Sorry. Quick tangent. Here I go. The reverse then, if they are saying that you can lower, excuse me, Mm -hmm. serotonin by your diet. Yep. Wouldn't the reverse also work your diet? It's like there's a gut health thing there. I'm just going back to that gut health. I mean, that's really not the point of this episode at all. It's just my I love that you're talking about it, though. My personal thing. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, keep going. I'm just going to I'm just pointing that out like. No, it's so if you're saying one thing, doesn't it work for the other side? But if it doesn't work at all, I think it totally that just works. goes out the window. But <laughs> I think it totally works. And so here, this this is the kicker. 
as of 2022, here I'll put I'll put the paper up on the screen. As of 2022, this is the most recent study in this field. And this statement comes directly from the researchers who are currently on the forefront of molecular neurology and psychology. I am going to quote you word for word the conclusion of this paper titled The Serotonin Theory of Depression, A Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. Okay, are you guys ready? Ready. The main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowering serotonin activity or concentrations. I know. 2022. 2022. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. I don't mean to be speechless. It's just like, that's just not what you, I I don't know. Not what I would expect. I honestly feel so lied to. Yeah. Because I think of all of the times I've been to see a counselor or I've been to see a psychiatrist for whatever I was going through at that time. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to start with cognitive behavioral therapy. They don't want to talk me through it. They don't want to help me change my diet. They don't want to. And we'll talk about all of the different things. They want to go straight to the SSRI. Right. Yes. And it gets worse. Yeah. What's more, SSRIs rapidly increase the amount of serotonin in the brain, but patients don't feel it for weeks. We know this to be true. Mm-hmm. If boosting serotonin signaling is the key, then the patients should feel better right away. Right. But they don't. But they don't. So no, what? Something that you're told when you're given these automatically is like, give it time. Give it time to yeah. kick in. Why does it need time? Why does it need time? Should it need time? I don't think so. But of course, the psychopharmacologists have a comeback for this. They argue that while some SSRIs like Lexapro bind directly to the transporter HCERT, the direct binding is not the underlying mechanism of action. It's not? It's not? (laughs) Then what is? Oh, oh, brace yourself. Instead... The antidepressants target our DNA, in particular, the genes that code for the serotonin transporter. It goes for the DNA. I don't want that. They make these genes less active, so fewer serotonin transporter molecules are available in the brain. This, it is argued, explains the delay action of antidepressants. They are changing your DNA. Right. And making it work less. Like not work better. It doesn't improve. It work. It doesn't. It's just stopping the transporter from doing its job. Right. Instead of like helping it along. It's like, nah, we got this. Don't do it on your own. Yep. Keep popping these pills. Yeah. So that's just the face of the mental health problem in general psychiatrists don't even know for certain what they are treating and what exactly they're doing when they treat it. 
They don't collect blood. They don't collect urine. They don't do brain scans to see if there's actually anything clinically wrong. They ask you how you feel and jump straight into SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, you fill out like a questionnaire. Yep. This little questionnaire. Yeah. And if you hit all the right ones, here you go. It's like candy. It is you want like- some? Do <laughs> you want some DNA editing pills to take? Mm-hmm. 14-year-old kid who's dealing with hormones and doesn't know right from left yet? Right. Mm. It makes me so angry because in some way... It's the same thing as like selling snake oil or very expensive placebos. Yeah. And this is the problem. These drugs aren't actually placebos because they have very, very serious long-term side effects that are only just now being realized because so many Americans have been on them for so, so long. Yeah. Yeah. And I know what we're going to get into, mm-hmm. but, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it's like, it's almost like a baby step to another thing that has long-term side effects that are irreversible and that they're trying to get children to do that and children who don't understand yeah. the meaning of it. And again, not to go down that. Because that's a whole nother something you and I know we could talk about for yep. another hours. But it's anyway, just a connection that I'm. I seeing. think it's an important connection, not only for us, but for the audience, because yeah. I don't think this is the only time we will look into the miscalculation, I'll say, of the medical field. I don't want to attribute to malice what could be attributed to stupidity, but it feels very malicious. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it, though. Stupidity and maliciousness. Yeah. There is a difference. But at the end, the result, unfortunately, can be the same. Yeah. So let's talk about the side effects of SSRIs. I know when I was posting about this on Twitter earlier and some of our folks here in the chat know firsthand the side effects of SSRIs and how hard and how horrible it is to live with this. And they were never told these side effects. Right. Some of the surface level things are things like insomnia, skin rashes, headaches, joint and muscle pain. Uh, These problems are typically temporary, mild, or both. It's the more serious side effects that I'm going to really get into. There's the reduced blood clotting capacity, which I didn't expect. Uh, And this is because of a decreased concentration of the neuro. Of the serotonin. Yep. In the platelets. In the platelets, yeah. Because serotonin is not just in your brain. Right. It's a very minimal amount in your brain compared to. Yeah your gut and your platelets. So, yeah. Literally, the whole point of them in your blood was so they would cause clotting. Right. 
So now, which is vital. Literally vital. If you start bleeding, you want your blood to clot so it stops the flow. If you have reduced blood clotting and you cut yourself, you'll just bleed and bleed and bleed. No bueno. Yeah, no bueno. (laughs) So that puts patients at a higher risk of internal bleeding, which is scarier. Which is scary. Especially if they're taking things like aspirin or an NSAID, uh, which... I take often because I get migraines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would freak me out. That would be terrible. Yeah. But let's talk about the deeper and even more sinister side effect that has only recently come to light, and that is PSSD. PSSD is post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. This is a sexual disorder that may arise during the administration of SSRIs and persist long after this discontinuation. Uh, Because it's a sexual dysfunction, I'm going to talk about some scientific sexual terms. Shut up, chat. Uh, I'll try not to... I will shut up too. Go. Okay. These persistent side effects include decreased libido, genital anesthesia, erectile dysfunction, and anorgasmia, basically on a, the inability to reach orgasm. Researchers admit that the prevalence of persistent sexual side effects after discontinuing SSRIs are not well known. <laughs> if you weren't really depressed before... <laughs> This is the and only the, joke I'm going to make. Okay. <laughs> I'm all done now. Yeah, yeah, you say that. But for real, and the, the other thing I don't like that it causes, I mean, the sexual stuff is obviously terrible. Yes. It's the emotional blunting. It's like yeah. you can't get sad, but you can't get happy. Right. Just that numb zombie. Yeah. Like state. Yeah. Uh, someone in the chat said, what is genital, genital anesthesia? You can't feel down there, like yeah. at all. You yeah. can't feel yourself pee. You can't feel yourself get ready to have fun with your spouse. None of, none of it. You can't feel it. Yeah. How awful. Yeah. Terrible. Just, I, I mean, like you said, if you thought you were depressed before. I mean, I was joking, but I'm not at the same time. Like Right. That's that's a horrible thing to lose on top of other the other right that you lose with it too. But yeah. And if especially if you don't know. If you don't know and all of a sudden, sorry, tangent. If you don't know and all of a sudden you are like I am not interested. I don't I got mm, I don't want it. I don't want I have nothing. I got nothing down yeah. there. That's a that's like First, you're so numb that it's you don't even it doesn't even phase you, right? Maybe, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's that's not normal, right? But if you don't know, you I think maybe more people than not would chalk it up to like that's just who I am now, and yeah, I don't know, and. They, they probably wouldn't even connect it to taking the drug because this is right. post SSRIs. This is after you're off the drug. Yes, exactly. Later. Not yep. immediate. Nope. Yeah. Some people, and we'll uh, watch some testimonials later, do feel it immediately. Um, but I have another study to share with you guys. 
Um, so this is post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, a very, very thorough literature review. For those of you guys who are really interested in the studies that I'm sharing tonight, I will put together a list of links and I will post them in the science tab in our discord. So if you're listening to this and you're like really interested to see the studies and read them for yourself, which I highly encourage you to do, uh, go over to our discord, uh, Corks of Creation. It's in our description below. Please join us. Check them out for yourself. See that I'm not just making stuff up. I'm getting these from the sources themselves that they are claiming. She did not write all these articles. <laughs> I don't have enough time in my life to write all these articles and send them to the Lancet or whatever. Um, but in this particular one we're looking at, um, they're, they're saying that there is no definitive treatment for PSSD. There are some proposed management options. Lowering the SSRI dosage could decrease the sexual side effects. But again, this is how this is often retained after stopping taking them anyway. Taking other drugs alongside SSRIs, drugs like, oh, I don't know, ketamine. I'm like, what? But they haven't been met with a lot of excess. So there's just like no way to really cope with it. Oh, yeah. And that makes me so incredibly sad, so incredibly angry for the people who were in a vulnerable place, right. who were just devastated, who were at the end of their rope. Absolutely. And these psychiatrists who don't know what the hell they're doing, give them a drug that they don't understand with these risks. Yep. <sighs> it's, I mean... You don't want to think that you have to be your own advocate in this situation. You don't want to think like, oh, they're going to prescribe me something that could be, could devastate my life. No, it's, they're trying to help. They're trying to make it better. So yes, you can do your research and you can on your own, but at the same time, you should be coached in these things. Absolutely. You should be, um, you should be told all of the options. Oh, there's, oh God, that, that. And so many things in the medical field, again, we could go on a huge tangent about. But you're, like you said, you're in this vulnerable place. You're not even in a place where you're going to really question. I think, honestly, too, for people who deal with depression and things like that, to get to the point to ask help is also a huge huge win that's a milestone that's like thank god they got to the point where they could ask for help yeah and then but then you have to be like you know and you're handed these drugs and you think i'm gonna get better and it's going to get better but i didn't know i don't know you didn't know you didn't and know. like you were saying terrible. earlier t- connecting this to the different types of drugs that are being given to kids now for another thing the medical field does not understand. <sighs> All right. Don't take it from me. 
take it from people who are living this now. I'm going to share with you guys some testimonials that I found very powerful. This uh, first one is a YouTube video. We're not going to watch the whole thing. We're just going to watch the first three minutes of what this guy is living with. And then we'll watch a couple of TikToks just so you guys can really understand what is going on. I'm delighted to be joined by Sean here today. Uh, Sean suffers from PSSD and he has kindly agreed to to share his story. This is part of a larger series of interviews with uh, folks who have PSSD. So, you know, thank you, Sean, for coming coming on to chat about this. Please just, you know, kick it off and tell us what, what, what happened to you. Yeah, sure. So I'll start from the very beginning. Um, back in 2020, during the lockdown and everything during COVID, I actually suffered from a lot of anxiety. So I went to my general practitioner and, you know, the second I said that I was put on an SSRI called Prozac. Um, at first I was totally fine and I had no side effects, like no symptoms. And then, um, you know, I discontinued it. No problem. Let's just say, let's fast forward, uh, six months later, I end up with COVID and then somehow end up with long COVID which was honestly debilitating. It was horrible. Um, I still have symptoms to this day. It's not as bad as it used to be, though. And then um, because of how bad that was for me, I decided to go back and try something else. Um, I tried Celexa. And, you know, I was given that right away. I tried it for anxiety again. And pretty much instantly, I ended up with general numbness, um, emotional blunting and I just couldn't really feel anything and I was freaking out. This was after the first pill, by the way, and mm -hmm. I started it and I, I didn't know what to do. I was just kind of like, I, I, read, I looked it up online and it said like, that's impossible to happen. And like, you know, that's, it's not a side effect. So I started panicking. I discontinued the medication immediately and I was just kind of in distraught for a while. And I thought it went away because a few days later it felt better and then it came back rapidly and it was just like, ever since that, it has been the exact same. Um, so basically my experience is I have PSSD from one pill and from I think it's pill. actually crazy to me how this wow. happens because I've told my general practitioner, I've told like two other, other doctors and they have dismissed me every single time and I just think it's crazy to me how this stuff happens to people it oh i get so much rage when a doctor dismisses a patient when they are actually dealing with something i get it you get those hypochondriacs who walk into your room and they're saying something's wrong with me and there's actually nothing wrong with them you cannot treat every patient like a hypochondriac you cannot do it <clears throat> no no, it's, it's awful. Um, so I grew up and found out when I was 13, but I've been dealing with it with it since I was eight that I had juvenile fibromyalgia. Oh. And that's one where everybody's like, that's not real. That's fake. That's not real. Yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, not acting like a normal kid. I mean, I was all the symptoms. It was terrible. Right. And I cannot tell you how many doctors, my mom was, my, my mom and dad were so persistent and I give them so many kudos because they didn't let up. Um, 
I can't tell you how many doctors we saw. One at the University of Michigan was like, do you like to read? Because if you're going to keep up this attitude, then you should just start. If you're going to keep up this attitude and keep sitting on the couch, then you should just read all the time. You might as well do something. And it was like, I was dismissed so much. And that, and that you're right. Like, yes, you have hypochondriacs that come in and you have to talk them down. But to be, but I feel like people more and more often are saying how they're dismissed, whether it's because the doctor can't figure it out or they don't want to, or they, I don't know. I don't know. But it's a terrible state of affairs that that's a common thing that people discuss. It's awful. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. Uh, The next set of TikToks we're going to watch come from the PSSD network. If you are someone who is listening to this and you actually do suffer from PSSD, I want you to know that you are not alone. There is a community out there of people who are suffering from this. I encourage you to go follow their work. I think they're doing some pretty good work out there. Um, They're not necessarily Christian, but they're speaking about this. Um, So check them out and we'll watch a couple of testimonials. Um, These people are holding up pieces of paper uh, and they're playing some music in the background. So I'll try and read off for our audio listeners what it says. Uh, This first paper says, in 2015, I took Zoloft for one year. It was zero complications. I took Lexapro for three months. I went off and my genitals are so numb. I can't feel my peace dream, warmth, or intercourse. PSSD doesn't care if you had an SSRI in the past. It doesn't care about your dose or your brand. Anyone can get SNRI. That's just one. Here is another. PSSD, and I've taken Lexapro from October of 2019 to November of 2021. Side effects I've had on medication and still off of it is issues such as complete loss of libido, gentle numbness and very light periods and also i have emotional blunting i know i can feel any emotion but it's all completely dulled i don't think i can ever mentally be depressed again not because i've healed from past depression but mentally i just can't get to that point and it's also the same with happiness Um, i'm never extremely happy about something and I have no interest in anything. I have no hobby since being medicated and off the medication. I'm just neutral. Nothing bothers me that much and nothing excites me that much. Uh, I, I know. And she is so young. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, that's awful. It is awful. It is terrible. And I suffer from PSSD, which is post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. I've had PSSD for three years after coming off of the SSRI citalopram. The symptoms I struggle with are total loss of sexual function, emotional blunting, and cognitive dysfunction. Another young one. These symptoms have made it impossible for me to pursue relationships and impossible for me to continue my education. 
I require medical attention, but there is no medical assistance to be found for this condition, as it is underreported and understudied. There really is no way to describe how severely this has impacted me. Please help us raise awareness. Please spread this message. We need attention, awareness, and research for PSSD. Thank Last one, guys. I know this is hard, but I think we need to see how it's actually hurting people. Um, this is another one of little notes. It says, I took Lexapro for one month, and its effects have been devastating. Lexapro caused permanent PSSD. I've lost the ability to feel emotions. My genitals and skin are numb. I have not taken any medication in years. If you take an SSRI, SNRI medication, you need. I couldn't read the last one, but you get the you get the picture. Yeah. Mm. It's tough. It is tough. Those are um, devastating consequences. Yeah. When you're just trying to heal yourself and be the best that you can be. You want to know what's like even worse? Yeah, it gets worse. It gets worse. I am so sorry, guys. This is like, but we need to talk about this. Yeah. Because it's not just affecting like how you feel about sex. It's impacting fertility overall. So in this study that was published, another one in 2022, so recent in terms of science, guys, so recent in Frontiers in Pharmacology, top-notch pharmacology paper. So you know at least the pharmacology field takes this paper seriously. And these people did an in-depth and detailed study on the effects of SSRIs on sperm. And they, and this is just a quote, our meta-analysis demonstrated that SSRIs have a statistically significant impairment on semen quality, such as sperm concentration, sperm mor- morphology, sperm motility, and the DFI, but not on semen volume. So all of the other things, just not how much. Furthermore, the damage to sperm morphology and concentration were observed in the three-month period of SSRI use. You take it for three months, and basically your swimmers aren't swimming good enough to Mm. cause pregnancy. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. Three months. Three months. This is something you're supposed to be on, like, your whole life? There's no end date. That's I mean, the thing. it's yeah. not like it cures depression. Right. Yeah. It, it was just supposed to be a Band-Aid and it wasn't even a good Band-Aid to begin with. Right. No. no. And then here we go. Here's another one. The Journal of Epidemiology published a hugely extensive study on the effect on pregnant women and conducted a prospective cohort study of 2,793 pregnant women. Crazy huge sample. And they found that SSRI use was associated with preterm birth. Yep. Yep. Mm, Not good. Not good. No. These psychologists, these pharmacologists are just shooting arrows in the dark instead of actually helping people. They are diminishing their ability, our ability to procreate. And again, 
I want to attribute to stupidity, but it feels so daggum malicious. Yeah. I know. People were saying in the chat earlier, and I think that it's true, is that I think at the top level, I wouldn't doubt for one second that it's more malicious. And I think at the bottom, like the people we talk to, the doctors we talk to, and yeah, and all of that, um, I think they are trying to help. Yeah. I I really do. I don't want to... um, give them too much credit or, or, you know, make them out to be what they're not. But I do think they are trying to help. I've, I've also listened to a lot of holistic doctors like podcasts and they'll say that like how they got into holistic medicine versus. Uh Oh, did I lose you? Hang on. Oh no. She was on such a good point, too. I'm telling you, the tech is after us. Oh, wait. I think I heard you. It's coming. Okay. I'm back, okay. I think. Okay. Yeah. So the reason holistic doctors got into this was because of what they saw, basically? Yeah. So they, a lot of them say, like, we realized we were just putting Band-Aids on things and not treating the... the. Uh-oh. I lost you again. What is going on? Oh my gosh. The the tech doesn't want her to say this. Obviously, she can't say this. They're shutting us down, guys. This is not okay. Oh man. It sounds like such a good point too. I want to hear it. So, I'm going to read chats while she figures that out. Uh, let's see. What do you guys have to say? Nancy, doctors are supposed to be able to heal, right? That is powerful motivation. They are supposed to be able to heal. This is insane. Um, Nancy talking about fibro is still a diagnosis of elimination. I I actually diagnosed myself first, and then I was able to explain it well enough to my doctor. That is so frustrating. That is frustrating. And Ah. that's where I was at, too. I'm I'm back. I hope my microphone just keeps cutting out, and then it'll mute me. So awesome. Sorry. It's okay. It's not your fault. I'm going to try one more time. I believe in you. Ah, but basically, holistic doctors were saying that they realized as doctors that they were just putting band-aids on situations and not mm-hmm. getting to the root cause of things. And that's what got them to look into holistic medicine and looking at the whole of it rather right. than just the little bits that, you know, let's plug a hole here and plug a hole here. It was like, no, let's find out the whole thing of it. So in all of that that I'm trying to get out, I'm sorry, was just I do think for the most part doctors are trying to help. Right. And unfortunately, there are um, those who are like, there's so much more to this because there is. And so, so much more. There's my tangent. I I loved it. It was a fabulous tangent. (laughs) And so (laughs) I know we've primarily been talking about depression, anxiety, and SSRIs, but this is not the only overdiagnosed mental health. Right situation, I guess I'll say, that is happening in America right now. Another, and as a teacher, I see this more often than I care to. There is a huge, huge overdiagnosis of ADHD, especially in kids. And before y'all come at me and say, hey, Jess, I have ADHD, listen, 
I'm specifically going to talk about the overdiagnosis in kids, much like I've done in the past. Because we've actually talked about ADHD on this show before. Yeah. If you guys remember our ASMR episode, we discussed brain activity. And we also mentioned how certain brain waves are associated with ADHD. And yet, ADHD isn't diagnosed using brain imaging, just like depression isn't diagnosed by actually measuring serotonin levels in the brain. Right. Right. Just behavior. Yep. In both cases, it's just behavior and it's self-reporting behavior. Yeah. That's true too. And doctors, just like they don't really get depression, they don't really know the causes of ADHD. All they see are the symptoms like daydreaming, forgetting or losing things, squirming or fidgeting, talking too much, making careless mistakes, having difficulty getting along with others. I don't know if you've met a kid before, (laughs) but they're literally all like this. Uh, I mean, yeah, at least to some extent they're, yeah. Literally the thing that defines a kid a kid is lack of impulse control. (laughs) You're not born with that? (laughs) Weird. Weird. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to go into like the whole tangent about it. Let's just talk about the very real and serious side effects of ADHD medication. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. being foisted upon the youth. Whether or not you think it should be diagnosed in kids, it is. And these kids are taking things like Adderall, uh, Dexatrin, Vi- Vyvanse, desoxin like all of these crazy drugs and they are amphetamine and amphetamine derivatives all right i don't you know if you guys know how amphetamines work these are stimulant medications that work by raising the levels of a chemical messenger called dopamine in the brain that is supposed to help improve focus and attention so this is another neurotransmitter and they say this is the neurotransmitter that is associated with people who have ADHD. Okay. Yeah, like bad quality <laughs> meme said, it's meth light. <laughs> you going to prescribe good. your kids meth? Right? It's diet meth. meth. Light? Diet, yeah, exactly. Meth zero? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> zero uh, fentanyl and your meth light. Right. <laughs> yes. I know, that bad joke. I like it. <laughs> Listen, it does act in your brain like cocaine, like meth, because it's it's a high, right? Mm-hmm. You're raising the dopamine levels. Um, and that means they can be similarly addictive. Ritalin's ability to increase energy and focus has even led some people to call it the poor man's cocaine. There you go. There you go. There it is. And there have been reports of people using ADHD as stimulants when they're prescribed to people just like people get oxycodone when they're not supposed to after their doctor gave it to them post-surgery and get addicted to those now of course the idea is you're not supposed to be giving your kid like insane amounts of ritalin and getting them hooked on it like they get hooked on cocaine i don't think any parent out there is like actually doing that snort this before you go to school (laughs) I'm sure some parents feel like their kids should do that just to get them to calm down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get pretty desperate, but. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. So, I mean, we can, we can see pretty clear, like the connection between 
these amphetamine derivatives and these highly addictive drugs. And long-term use of all stimulants can lead to tolerance. And that means you need higher and higher doses to obtain the same effect as a controlled substance. And so when this happens, the doctor may be more likely to consider using non-stimulants. Why does it have to wait until the kid gets tolerant of it before they use a non-stimulant? I know. Why wouldn't we resort to that first? Or go to ah. if you're gonna do if you're gonna right. do medicine. Let's give you the pure coke first. <laughs> That's not working out. All right. Well, we'll we'll try something else. I don't. Oh, it just makes me so. Uh. Yeah. Did you ever hear the story of Jim Carrey? Like when he was in school? No. Like, I love okay. Jim Carrey. I love Jim Carrey. I think he's hilarious. He's and, so funny. Yeah, and that's not like his person or anything. I just right. all of his movies. They're for the so most good. Part, just think he is hilarious. His stand up. Now he's kind of like it. insane, but he's gone like full circle in a weird way. It's I don't know, but I don't follow him that way. I just love on screen. Right. You know, Ace Ventura. There we movie. go. Boom. <laughs> so he told a story. I think. Either he told it, well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, he was in school, um, grade school, and of course he's Jim Carrey. Right. And he's just like, woo, all the time. And his teacher said to him, listen, if you can get through the day and if you can sit and pay attention and get through the day, um, I will give you the last 20, 15 minutes of class to do all the things. You can go crazy. You can entertain us all. You can, you know. I will let you let loose. And it worked. And he was oh. like, he would get through school because he knew he was going to have those 15 minutes to just, woo. Right. And I just love the creativity of that teacher in that moment. Yeah. Like, instead of throwing pills in his mouth, she was like, I will give you this time. Right. To do your thing. And so, I don't know, just a... Cool story. Like there are that story. different avenues and options, but yeah. There are different options. You don't have to pinhole these young children to be these tiny robots who have to sit in chairs eight hours a day when they're seven years old and they should be outside running and playing and developing motor skills and using their imagination, yeah. not locked in a room doing flashcards for eight hours. Right. Ah, ah! But if you medicate them, then it's easier. <laughs> I know. Okay, so even at the outset, these freaking doctors are prescribing a medication to children that really needs to be carefully controlled. Obviously, obviously. And so here's where it gets crazy. This team from the Nordic Cochrane Center set out to answer the question about the impact of ADHD medications on kids through a very systematic review of human studies. And incredibly, horrifyingly, they discovered that there was not much data apart from like this one trial that did a 16-year follow-up with pretty negative results. They found that extended use of ADHD medicine in kids resulted in the kids lo- like having their height suppressed. Like they don't grow at the same rate right. other kids of their age do. And so they become very short adults overall. 
Hmm. That's insane. Because it's affecting their hormones. Right? Right. Yeah. So they're not growing properly. Exactly. What else are they not doing properly? That's the thing. It's affecting their endocrine system. If it's messing with their hormonal system, if they're losing height, what else are they losing on? Yeah. But there's not enough human trials to even know. No. There's just the just the one study. Everything else is done on rats. Right. Oh my goodness. But even still, the ones that are done on rats found delayed puberty, fewer uh, basically period cycles in female mammals, impairment of fertility. Like, if that's what it's doing to rats. I don't want to extrapolate and say that's what it's doing to humans, but we can't conclusively say that it's not what it's doing to humans. Right. Right. It would, at least you would think warrant more study. Yeah. Call me crazy. You would think. You would think. Uh. And so here's the thing. Let me get this straight. We don't know that kids actually have ADHD because we're not confirming it with brain scans, only with behavior, but psychologists are willing to obliterate a child's future fertility so they can sit still at school. Got it. Mm-hmm. Listen, <laughs> I don't want y'all to sit here and be like, Jess is just anti-science. She doesn't want us taking any medicine at all. First, that's not true. Okay, if you have a medical condition, like a physical medical condition, severe pain, pneumonia, whatever, you should get help. Okay, I'm not like, just go rub some dirt on it, man, and then you'll be fine. (laughs) This issue I'm taking is specifically with the mental health field, because they are specifically treating your mental health, the state of your spirit, the state of your soul, as though it's something that can be repaired like your body with a chemical interaction drug that they don't even understand. Mm-hmm. And how much research is put into more natural ways to uh, sound like a dirty hippie, but you know what I'm saying? Isn't it funny? <laughs> how the Overton yeah. window has moved on that so hard. Right. Yes. <laughs> it used to be the dirty hippies who were like, you know, just like grow your own food, man. Don't eat like the animals that they're giving antibiotics to, man. Big pharma, man. Smoke the Haitian oregano, man. And now it's like conservatives with families who are like, yeah, I'm not trusting them. Yeah, I ain't doing that. <laughs> I know. I know. It's funny how that has flipped. I am a dirty hippie. <laughs> you dirty hippie. But, uh, where was I going with that? I don't even know. I don't even know. Just saying derogatory remarks. Willy nilly. It's what I do. And so this, I guess the thing oh. I'll say. Oh, go yes. ahead. Go, go, go. Just natural, more natural ways too. We, we aren't, I don't know how much that's being studied. Is we all. don't. It, yeah. Cause it's not. Yeah. Obviously. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> There's no money in that. What? There's no money. Oh, how interesting. Oh, 
There's no money, you say, in not making chemicals and making people independent and able to care for themselves. Call me crazy. Fascinating. (laughs) This is not like all of this is not to say that there isn't a connection between our brains and our emotional and behavioral outputs. Oh, right. We explored that topic in detail in our consciousness science in the soul episode if you guys haven't seen that you should check that out because that was fun elise was dressed in a toga (laughs) toga that's right i might have felt pressured oh did you feel pressured no (laughs) i i think frida bullied you into it absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) that was awesome i love it but But yes it was a great episode it was yes on this. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, it, it's all, it, amazingly enough, it's still all related. And so if depression was truly a result of having lower serotonin levels in the brain, they should be able to test it and prove it that it's a chemical imbalance, but they can't. If ADHD can be detected by analyzing a person's brain waves, as we talked about in the ASMR episode, why aren't they doing that to measure whether or not a child actually has ADHD instead of it just being misbehavior? Metal, mental health practitioners have medicalized the human condition. They're trying to use a pill to remove the challenges of life instead of equipping people with the tools they need to work through life. And a lot of this stems from the atheistic nature of our society. If God does not exist, if there's nothing after this life, then maximizing happiness is the ultimate goal. And not only that, but it removes personal responsibility from people. If it's just a chemical imbalance in their brain, they're helpless to fix it for themselves. They have no responsibility to pray, work out. They're suffering for themselves. They have to learn how to cope because it's out of their hands. They can't do anything about it. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) That's – I've never really thought about it that Deeply, but I love that. Like, you're right. It takes the responsibility off of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I have more to add, but I'm going to wait till the end. Keep going. Okay. I don't want to say all that to say that it's not hard. To say that it is right. not awful to endure these things. To say that it is not an incredible burden to walk through life with this hanging on your chest every second. I've been um, listening to C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain lately. um, And this quote really stood out to me. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Like, listen, I get it. It sucks. Life freaking sucks sometimes. Life freaking sucks sometimes. And just one more time for the people in the back. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. Yeah. That line. I love that quote. That line in particular. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than my heart is broken. Like It is. We're going to get into like talking about it, but. Just hold on. It's hold on to that. Like attempting to conceal it makes it more of a burden. It does make it more of a burden. Yeah. And I, in a lot of ways, our recent society has made it even more of an incredible burden. 
Like, I don't want to go in to the whole COVID episode fiasco. I'm sure at some point in our lives, when I feel ready to talk about it, we'll do an episode on it. But let's just think about it like this. Governments all across the world locked people into their homes, banned them from their churches and their communities, in some places for months, in some places for years on end. Is it surprising then that people all across the world feel more miserable, cut off from life, cut off from human connection? And I mean, we had already seen this trend increasing. I mean, the stats I gave at the top of the show were from 2012 to now. So it had already been getting bad. It's just like the lockdowns kind of exacerbated it. Yeah. And as people dive deeper and deeper into the portal to hell in their pockets, they disconnect from real life. I know people hate it when I say go touch grass, hashtag real grass, things like that. But did you know that like that grass is like actually good for you? Yeah. I don't say that to be offhand, be like, oh, just get off your phone, man. You see how often I'm on Twitter. I love our internet community. Yes. We're going to talk about how important community is and how special that is. But there is something to be said about getting out of your own freaking head. Did you know that there's this whole trend happening on TikTok right now called silent walking? Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. Where you don't have a phone or so, like anything yep, like you that. Have no stimulus, no input. You just walk in silence with your thoughts. How revolutionary TikTok. <laughs> I'm, <sighs> I can understand to an extent when you have had the ability to have noise and a phone and all of that around you all the time. Right. This would be, this would just be crazy. <sighs> I look forward to going for walks. Me too. And turning like my phone. Fu- I, I usually take it because I'm usually walking with my girls. So I right. like, just in case. Uh, no, absolutely. <laughs> but, right. But I will turn off the noise. Yeah. And it's there if I need it. But it's like, just be in the moment and enjoying it. What a crazy <laughs> TikTok phenomenon. But people get stressed about it. They do. It's it like, uh, <laughs> I don't understand that. Like being alone with your own thoughts freaks you out. That makes me concerned for you right. as a human being. Right. What is going on in your head? What is so scary that's in your head? Well, I know what's so scary in their head. They have this God-shaped hole in their souls yeah. that they've been trying to fill with empty and meaningless things. Yeah. And when they have to stare into the void for five seconds, the void stares back. That's true. It's very true. You know, and and I'll be honest, like, I don't always want to be alone with my thoughts. And I'll catch myself, like, numbing myself to whatever is rattling around in there. Like, no, I'm just going to watch TikTok for, like, you know, four hours. But, and that is as a Christian. So it's, right. you know, you We're still. We're all guilty of that. Absolutely. I get scared of my own thoughts, too. But the thing is, that's also part of healing and stepping into a more mature place, not only in your walk with Christ, but just you as a person. And yeah, it can be scary, I guess, if you've never done it before. Right. To just go for a walk with God, but I don't know. 
I know it's hard. I'm just saying I can feel it too. I I've, I've yeah. felt I I can I can understand. My thoughts can get scary too, but oh, everybody's you know. Every, that's yeah. the thing is, I think the thing we're all thinking is, especially when we're in that depressed place, is no one has ever felt the way I feel. No one feels this. Everybody's life is perfect. My right. life is the one who's falling apart. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Why is this happening to me? And I get it. It's easier to pop a pill. It's easier to get online. It's easier to numb yourself out and live like a robot. Tis better to be empty than filled with sorrow. But that just isn't true. Yeah, there's great sorrow, but there's also great joy. Yes. <clears throat> and that re- reminds me of a verse. So John 10, 10. Um, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And what's hilarious is Nanasi said in the chat something about Mark Lowry. And I I think it was him or it might have been um, another Christian comedian that was very similar to him. Mm-hmm. But he was, I remember, he's like, God came to give you life more abundant. And of course, he's over gesturing. Like abundant, abundant, like this, like high, low, and it's big, all of it. So it's not abundant, like your life is easy. It's not stuff. And it's not abundant um, happiness all the time. Right. You have abundant joy. You will also have abundant sorrow like that. But that's life and that's, you can't appreciate the joy without the sorrow. Yeah. And, um but my prayers go out to people who get stuck in the sorrow Same. and can't get to the joy. Because I know that's real, too. And not to go off on that tangent either. But it's just life is abundant. And also, again, the frequent attempts to conceal mental pain, even from yourself. Yeah. You're making it worse. So the attempt to numb it, the attempt to not deal with it, shove it down, push it aside, whatever to cope you're not doing yourself any favors there right. either so look it in the face look it in the face don't be afraid to stare at it and don't be afraid to take hold of it and do something about it i think the common thread we're seeing here tonight is that the world wants you to feel like you're powerless yeah. but you are not powerless no you don't have to be hopeless there's something that we can do besides just taking a pill. And so I wasn't just going to sit here and rag on SSRIs and drugs all night and just be like, well, good luck with your depression. Have fun. No, <laughs> let's talk about some real things that we can like actually do about it. And the first thing I want to talk about is community because, oh my gosh, how much better would you feel if you were surrounded by like-minded individuals who you could just like share that burden with. Yeah. Who can give you affirmation and validation and take you out of that alone space where you think you're alone. And I think that's one of Satan's best lies is that this is unique to you and this is a you problem and you are all alone. And so you stay away from your community. Right. And then Um, 
So this study I have pulled up by the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry. They put out this really extensive, comprehensive study on the link between community and depression and anxiety. They looked at 31 separate studies, 2,898 participants. Crazy, crazy big study. Mm -hmm. They looked at things like community enjoyment of music, community exercise, community gardening, all these different things. And there is a clear trend in improved depression and anxiety symptoms. The only frustrating part about these studies and really all recent studies um, is that they tend to have this overly political nature of their discussion. Uh, Here's one quote. I'll read from it because it's like just so obnoxious. It is clear from our review that young people and minority groups are underrepresented in these studies. Okay, whatever. Okay. Uh, But I I feel like that just weakens their claim because – They actually do have a strong claim. The results suggest community engagement is a promising area for wide-reaching interventions to be implemented and evaluated, but more high-quality trials are needed, especially with these extra groups. Again, um, the work is conclusive, but they're just being like... You don't want to say it. They didn't want to say it because it wasn't like politically correct or whatever. Yeah. Yeah which is annoying, but there were other studies I looked into because I just can't get enough of reading science journals. Uh, This one I have up is from 2021 and I like it because it, uh, again, this is another one. Oh, I pulled up the wrong one. My bad. I'll get there. I feel like Jess needs a medal for all of the journals (laughs) that she reads. And I'm not saying that facetiously. Like you need some sort of accolades because it's, those are not, even when you have a background and understand most of what they're saying, it's still not easy. For you to- well, and the thing is, is I understand, I'm enough to, uh, I understand enough to like actually read it. Right. There's some things I have to be like, I don't understand that thing that you just said and like Google the equivalent of a biochemistry thesaurus and figure out <laughs> what I don't understand because this isn't necessarily my field of expertise but I've taken enough science classes to work my way around it. Yeah. Um, but this is the one I was talking about. And I love this one because it's about online community. And what are we but Yay! a really cool online community? We matter. We matter. I matter. You matter. We all matter. Woo-hoo! Um. So in this study, most participants reported that the main benefit of Depression Connect, which was the online community they used, was creating the sense of belonging and recognition, emotional support, and the more intrinsic understanding from peers. Uh, And I just thought that was so cool that they said it felt like a warm-hearted environment. You felt connected to people through recognition. Other users recognized the feelings that other users were sh- like they were just sharing life together. They were doing life together and they didn't feel isolated. And of course, like any online interaction, you can get negative interactions. But if you go in trying to spread positivity, you will get positivity back, just like yeah. you do in your in person communities. Right. Absolutely. And. Also knowing that trolls are a thing, so you just ignore them. They're not part of your community. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't feed the trolls under the don't bridge. Don't feed the trolls. That's right. Leave them alone. 
And so this is just like the core of it. I got asked a while ago on that NGL app, like that not going to lie app that Mm, they do, um, what my greatest fear was. And I mean, aside from spiders, which like objectively are the most disturbing things on planet Earth. (laughs) My first question in heaven, why God, why? Why the spiders? Um, My my greatest fear is isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. We're social creatures. We're meant to live in communion with one another. And so is it really shocking that since we've abandoned all our social structures in favor of isolation that we are more miserable? Right. No. (laughs) No. Definitely not. Uh, it's it's crucial. It's vital. It is a an essence of being a human being. It's it is like a vitamin or a, a mineral that you need. You need your community. You need your people. Do, and uh, it's key to success too. It is. I yeah. mean, even the ancients knew this. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle describes friendship as reciprocated goodwill. But it is the source of that goodwill that differentiates perfect friendship from two imperfect forms of friendship. So with true friendship, you get friends loving each other just for their own sake, not wishing to get something out of it. And right. people just don't do that anymore. They see all of their relationships as transactional Instead of just like loving people because we're living this life together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, not to call out the church, but I will. Do it. I think that that is a huge issue in the church is that we go in and we put on like, I am a good Christian person. I have these problems that are acceptable, I'm not going to tell you about these issues, these problems, this part of my life that is not acceptable to talk about. Whoever set that standard, I don't know. I don't believe that's biblical. (laughs) But I do, and not not every church body, not everywhere, not, uh, you know, this is a generalization, but you can find that and that gets really difficult too is like more authentic selves. There's a, you know, you can be respectful in church and right. still be authentic. And I think that's gotten lost a bit too, which is a shame because that's where our community, that's yeah. where our base should be. It is. Our church community, our church family. And not saying that that can't be found. It certainly can. Yeah. It's just sad that so many modern churches have become more country clubs and rock concerts and, about having the perfect life than about it being a hospital for sinners. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But just like thinking on that, I feel so blessed to have you, a true friend like you and all of our Hawkhound buddies and like our awesome community. You guys are the best. I just had to say that. Yes. I love love it. Me too. Yay. Guys are awesome. The best. So uh, another thing you can do. So besides community (coughs) is like you've been saying all night, exercise and diet. Exercise and diet? Yes. Weird. 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 Yes. Oh, I'm sure you're shocked by this development. Shocked. Shocked. Can't believe it. So this is a 2023 study. Again, I, I, there are so many recent study guys that I was pulling from. 
And this one demonstrated the correlation between major depressive disorder and exercise. And as you can imagine, there were major improvements in participants who engaged in exercise. Uh, However, they did acknowledge that it's kind of difficult to get people to start or stick to their routines. But the people who did saw massive improvements. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, like you say, exercise and people automatically think of like gym rats, you know, and get over overwhelmed. At least I know I can with all of that. Exercise doesn't have to be crazy. Like it really doesn't walk a little more like walk around your neighborhood. Yeah. Go walk around the park. Yeah. Just like get out and breathe some fresh air. Mm -hmm. Do, Do some silent walking. Try it. I dare you. <laughs> right. Give it a whirl. <laughs> I don't know if any of you guys follow Dave Dana. Do you follow him Mm-mm. on Twitter? He is like my personal hero, not to go off on like the world's weirdest side tangent, but I am in love with his Twitter. He is like one of the most positive human beings. I'm just going to share his page. That's what I'm going to do. The most positive human beings on planet earth. He started out at 400 pounds, miserable in debt. He just like was in a bad place and he decided that he wasn't going to do it anymore. He just decided it. And now he's like lost 200 pounds. He was acknowledged by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, dude, Arnold, nice. But he just constantly puts out these amazing and inspiring posts about how he turned his mental health around, how he's taken control of his life. Like, I just love these comments that he puts up. He's like, I can do it. You can do it. We can do it. Every single day, we can do it. And I'm just like, he's inspired me to be a gym bro. Like, hashtag inspiring gym bro. Love it. (laughs) <laughs> I lied. I uh, I have heard of him. He's really awesome. He's so nice and He's so cool. Awesome. Yeah. And so just like, I feel like we need more people like that who aren't gatekeeping uh, exercise, who aren't gatekeeping dieting and saying, yeah. you must do this specific thing in order to lose weight or in order to feel better. Like, just yeah. work at it. And he acknowledges it sucks. Yeah. It's hard. You wake up, you fight the demons at 4 a.m., you get to the gym, and you just do it. And it sucks mm-hmm. and it's hard. Yep. But it pays off. You feel better after you do it. And it's like yeah. pe- people want the easy thing. People want the pill to pop. It's easier. You don't have to work for it. Yeah. But if you work for this, you just get so much more out of it. Absolutely. <clears throat> and it's it's that – and longevity in your life. Yes. And how much more do you enjoy your life when you can live it healthfully? You know, if you're in pain all the time, like I said about fibro, and I still deal with it today, but exercise was a key component of me feeling better. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, I didn't want to because I was hurting. And I was like, that's just stupid. <laughs> I hurt. I'm not moving. Once I finally got into it, though, it's amazing how that when that pain is gone, when like the the 
Mm, aches and pains go away. I'm not saying it's a cure-all for everything. Don't get me wrong. But your mood just lightens up so much, not just because, I don't know. There's so many reasons. There's so many reasons. But you just, when you feel good, you feel good physically, emotionally. Right. Exercise is cool. It doesn't if have they're to gonna, scare you. It doesn't have to be scary. It. They were talking about the whole neurotransmitters controlling your emotion ideas. You get there's a reason the runner's high is a thing. Yeah. You get a release of endorphins when you exercise. Absolutely. Not in that instant, but like after the fact, yes. like I know when I've come home from a really good workout at the gym, I just like feel, oh, I'm ready to go. Ass, let's <laughs> tackle life. Yeah. And that's why I love working out in the morning because then I just have the energy for the day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I suck at not hitting the snooze button and going back to bed. But when I do it. But when I do. I know. That's part of it. Like that. That's part of it. I liked what Nathan said. Yeah. Yeah. Your buddy can force you to put on pants. (laughs) Yeah. Having a a workout buddy buddy. is so nice. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Everybody should have. I don't have a gym buddy, but having a gym buddy, buddy would be awesome. It would be, it was, it's nice. Like for me with roller derby practice, we practice twice a week or we did. (sighs) We're in our off season. So happy. (laughs) Now I have to stay motivated. Right. To work out over the workout. Well, I'm not at practice, but anyway, you know, you have a whole group, you have a whole team who's counting on you. So it's like, I don't want to go, but if I don't go, that is the thing about being with friends in that sort of environment that is really motivating. Like when you're just trying to motivate yourself, I don't know, personally, it's hard. It's hard to motivate myself, but just for myself. But like when I was doing martial arts and I had to go and like teach classes and like be there to train for the next tournament with my team, like that's what motivated me. That's what got me out of the house. Yeah. Even though I just wanted to sit Did at home. Not and- want to. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All day. And so, uh, like, somebody was making fun of pickleballers. Like, they, I don't know why, but them and roller derby people, they're always like at each other's throats because we're trying to use the same court at the same time. Oh, I think roller derby is probably more intense than pickleball because isn't pickleball for like seniors? Yeah. Yeah, it's like tennis, but not so, I don't know. Yeah. And I'm like, man, you guys are brave coming after us, but okay. <laughs> the roller but, derby girls. Roller derby people. But but all honestly, honesty, honestly, holy cow, one of those words. <laughs> one of them. Put in whichever one fits. They are a group. They get together at least once a week, and they're really going after it and they're having a good time and having fun like i don't know find something if you need it like that like just find something yeah find something but i'm just saying there's options and it's a lot more fun with people it is so much more fun with people tick off all the boxes community exercise share recipes there you go three in one boom perfect oh i love sharing recipes okay uh, yeah. Last study I'm going to share yeah, I'm for the, no, you're good, for the diet. This one's for diet, so not just exercise. The, again, very awesome, very comprehensive uh, study. And again, it just shows you that getting essential nutrients can improve depression symptoms, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you're shocked by. Shocked. 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 
The finding of this review provides preliminary evidence for the positive impacts of dietary interventions in the treatment of depressed patients. Hmm. Weird. Weird. No, I do love that. Me too. Yeah. Goes back because to gut health. It does. And I am a huge proponent of that. But also, like, you have control when you feel helpless. And I think that's a good perspective to have. Because, again, this all can be very overwhelming. And I can understand that I've been there where it's like, I don't even know where to start, so I'm just not going to. But when you come at it from the perspective of like, I'm taking control of my life instead of putting it in the hands of doctors or whatever. Right. Or, or even hand in hand. I don't know. But um, you're taking that control and you do things as you can. Right. You can also something to be proud of too. And I think that helps you feel better. It does. Look what I did. I love it. That was great. Um, so another uh, technique, if like the exercise hasn't worked, the diet hasn't worked, having community hasn't worked, like you've done those basic things and you're still just like in the deepest, darkest place, there's this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy. This is slowly gaining traction uh, as an alternative to SSRIs. I wish it was more prevalent because CBD treatment basically involves changing the way you think. Yeah. It's helping you learn to recognize that your thinking is kind of distorted, that you need to reevaluate your situation in terms of actual reality, not your perceived reality, trying to gain a better understanding of your own behavior and the motivation of others instead of projecting your emotions onto others, like actually see how people are treating you, trying to use problem-solving skills to cope with difficult situations, and just learning to have confidence. It's like getting out of your own head and stop being so neurotic. <laughs> and I hate saying it like that because I get it when you get in that dark spiral and you can't get out of your own head. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is like being in a very dark place. You're trying to climb uphill to get to the sunshine and like rocks just keep being added into your backpack. So it's just getting harder and harder. It can really get that bad in your headspace. And it's nice to have somebody who can talk with you through it, talk yeah. you through it, help you to re- we learn how to think and also to just see it in a different view and also validate you like you're not you're not crazy you're not you know you're not all these negative things you're telling yourself right let's rethink this situation and just again to have somebody give you guidance in that i think is super beneficial and important and not shameful it's not shameful and it's i another think stigma it, I think overall, there's a lot of stigma of getting real and concrete help and not enough stigma and just like popping a pill because like everybody yeah. takes pills for something. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that. You take a medicine. The, the medicine has been overly accepted and getting actual real meaningful help is the thing that is not being talked about is the thing yes. that is being sort of castigated as like kooky or quacky yeah i just don't get it mm -mm. 
But, of course, there are studies to show how awesome cognitive behavioral therapy is. Again, this is a much newer field of study, so there is fewer of them. But even in this first graph, we can see the blue line cognitive therapy just, like, works better than giving antidepressant drugs, which is the red line. Wow. Pretty pretty Pretty, clearly. Over months. Yeah. Wow. Um, They show... If you like really get into the weeds, uh, the improvement in brain scans, like they went crazy, crazy. And this study, the results are just like phenomenal to show how much improved your, your thought process is after engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy. That's awesome. It's crazy. Um, and then there's this other one from 2020. Uh, And this one, their conclusion is based off of 50 years of data, just like spanning. Oh, I should actually probably share the page, shouldn't I? Share the stat instead. Yay. Um, Like lots and lots of analysis with SSRIs, MAOIs, all of the different antidepressants, just like over time and comparing it to people who have gotten some type of therapy instead. So like... These authors were led by Stephen Holland from Vanderbilt University. They do some really awesome work over there. Um, And they found a massive reduction in the duration of depressive episodes, the finding the root cause of depression, making relapse less common. And by their estimates, patients who were treated to remission with talk therapy are half as likely to relapse following treatment as patients who are treated with antidepressant medications. Love that. Me too. Wow. They go into this like really funny comparison, like using squids, which is, I think it's funny. So I'm just (laughs) going to read it to you. So antidepressant medications anesthetize us from feeling physical and emotional effects of depression. Depression medication may help treat the symptoms of depression, but comes at the cost of allowing people to identify the problems that are causing the depression in the first place. The author's, here, uh, basically use uh, an example from biology to make their point. They say a team of scientists examined the evasive behavior of a squid in response to an attack of one of their natural predators, the sea bass. Uh, and the sea bass eats squid and the squid tries to avoid being eaten. And each species goes through an intricate series of maneuvers when they encounter one another that involve orientation and approach on the part of the sea bass, culminating in some sort of attack and protective coloration and evasive maneuvers like the inkjet on the part of the squid. So the f- survival of the squid depends on how soon it starts the evasive maneuvers once the sea bass appears. So to study the effect of physical pain on a squid's ability to outmaneuver the sea bass, the researchers amputated the squid's swimmers in a testing environment, making them more susceptible to predation. And the catch was this. They either performed the amputation with or without anesthesia. So they're, they're not actually amputating it. They're just like dulling their senses. Gotcha. And they found the ones that were without anesthesia started their evasive maneuvers sooner and were less likely to be eaten. And the ones who had been anesthetized were the ones who were often attacked. Hmm. Kind of like how if you're anesthetized to depression, you're less likely to react to your own surroundings. 
that makes that makes good sense. Right. Makes good sense. I just thought that was interesting. I like that analogy a lot. I also love how a lot of this has related back to sea animals. <laughs> I know. It's so weird, right? <laughs> it's just like not a thing I thought I'd encounter when doing this research. Right? I love it. <laughs> that's that's good. I mean, they're anesthetized. They're numb. Um, zombie is like the word that keeps coming to mind. Yeah. Of course, they're not going to react quickly to anything going on here or appropriately. Right. To the sea bass. <sighs> yeah. Last thing I'll mention, and I think the one that is closest to both of us is prayer. Yeah. Because we can try and fill the sadness in our hearts with all of the different things of this world, but it will always come up empty if we don't actually reach for the one we're supposed to be filling it with. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's easy. But like you were saying earlier, you just find deeper and more meaningful joy. And it comes out in the science as well, which I enjoy. Yay! Yeah. So they actually did a study on prayer. Yay! <laughs> so 21 studies had <clears throat> prayer frequency scores of five to eight, indicating that they had evaluated private prayer, praying for one's own health, of suitable frequency in association with health conditions. And nine out of the 11 studies indicated that private par- prayer was associated with a significantly lower prevalence of depression. Lucky there. Lucky there. Lucky there. Love this. I know. They said that prayer is associated with a significant benefit for depression, optimism, coping, and other mental health conditions such as anxiety. Yeah. It's like we were made to do that. It's like we were made to do that. Pray without ceasing. I think. (laughs) I think it says that somewhere. I think I heard that somewhere sometime, someplace. I love all of these things and they remind me of, well, were you, I don't want to, I don't want to. No. Yeah. That's, I have another study, but we've gone on very long for our episode and you guys get the idea. There's so much evidence behind all of this to show the damage that SSRIs and that these drugs are doing to people when we don't have to actually take the drugs. Right. Right. I I think it's also important to say that um, this also isn't a judgment either. Right. Because, right. I mean, and and I think I can, I'm definitely speaking for both of us when I say that. We're coming from a loving place where, and obviously a well-researched place with this because mental health is such a, um, it's such a serious topic and yeah. it's, something that can lead to a very unfortunate place for people to be in, Um, whether it's self-medicating with things that are not prescribed, drugs, alcohol, whatever. Right. Um, Or you can take the prescriptions and then have some really unfortunate side effects, obviously, and not understand that there's other ways to go about it. But I also want to say from a personal standpoint And I know a few in the chat um, 
have been down this road too. But this is mental health is such a hard thing to combat, especially depression in that it all is, but we've we've been specifically talking mostly about depression. So that's what I'll stick with is it's really easy to get down into that hole and not be able to see a way out. And for me, I was diagnosed with this at an early age. I think I started taking antidepressants at 14, 15, 16. Mm. I stopped um, in my as a teen. And then mid-20s, I started again because I was just like, I just don't know how to, how to function. Right. And I will say that doing that, I um, was able to go into it with the mindset of like, I think I need this to get that step so I can actually start doing the other things I know I need right. to get out of this hole. And that, and that worked for me. Um, this is not advice. This is just me being honest and saying like, been there, done that. I've been right. through, um, this is something that runs in my family a lot. So we talk about it a lot. But that was one one way I had to fix myself was I had to kind of start on the medication. And then it was like, okay, right. I can see clearly. I know that this med won't last forever because, you know, you get right. used to it. So then you need more or whatever. Yeah. But it did give me the boost, if you will, that I needed to like to pray more, to exercise more, to start thinking about my diet, to actually start thinking about things outside of myself. Right. And so I, um, I just hope everybody knows we're not coming at it like, I know Whiskey Biz said this as a joke, and it was, I, I get it, it was a joke, but I think he just said like, just stop being depressed, like, you know. We actually don't mean that. Not at all. Yeah. No. I just wanted, and I think, and you've said that, I just yeah. wanted to reiterate it here at the end, like, really wanted to hammer home that point that this is a, this is coming from a loving place, like, you have options, mm-hmm. you don't have to castrate yourself to feel like right. yourself you know um and the therapy and all these things like they don't need to be taboo find your people find your place jess and i are here join us on yeah. discord like i'm not i i will listen to anyone if you are going yeah. through it and you just need someone to talk to get in the voice chat i yep. i would love to talk to you yep i would love to pray with you yes you know, anytime, all the anytime. time. Yes. Yeah. Like we're so, I threw you out there with me, but I n- figured you, I knew you would you know. be all about it. So, but we're I, here. I will, we are here. We will find a way to make time, whatever that looks like to be here for you guys, because you're here giving us your time. We also want to give our time to you because, yeah. you know, God, God loves you. Yes. And but by extension, we love you too. Absolutely. So just don't, please don't ever feel alone. Yeah. Or like there's no way out. There's, there's options, you know, uh, like I said, you can talk to us. We're not licensed. Maybe that's a good thing too. I don't know. I am not going to write you a prescription for SSRIs. And I know I've been like digging on drugs all night, but I love your story that you use it just like as the step to get where you needed to go. I just wanted to do this to give people the information because yeah. I think people just don't have it to make I it. I didn't. 
Exactly. I, yeah. I can't remember who said it earlier in the chat, but this is not informed consent. I am giving you yes. the information so you can make informed consent. I'm not telling you not to take SSRIs, but now you know the full extent of it so you can make an informed decision and actually have informed consent when and if you go to take them. Yes. And options and more options. Yes. You know, and just, just it was awesome because you gave us more options with backed up data. So it was like, if you feel like that's the only way and you right. don't want to take it, like there are options. So there it's just, options. this is all just so everybody knows from a loving and well-informed place. And we love you all so much. So don't, do. don't feel alone. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you don't want to reach out to us, there are right. resources. I think Elise, you had pulled yes. some resources for us to share with our friends here. There are a few, um, Actually, I put them in the chat. So there's a few mental health support groups that um, are Christian-based that I had found online. None of them are, you know, affiliated with us or right. anything like that. But it was just like a quick Google search. Find what works for you. Find what you need. Find those good people who will sit and pray with you, talk with you. All the good things. It's out there. And... Don't give up. Definitely don't give up. Yeah. Uh, since you kind of gave your personal story, I'll give yeah. uh, my personal story because I've, I went through a lot when I was in grad school being in this place where I felt like I was being encouraged to do things that I felt conflicted with my morality. And it was just coming up to a head. I was so miserable. I felt so isolated and so depressed. I started going to see, um, a doctor who immediately put me on Lexapro and I took it a couple of times and it just made me feel worse. Um, so I got off it. And then a couple of months after I left grad school, my, one of my best friends in grad school took her own life <sighs> and I had, I had no idea, absolutely no idea what she was going through or anything like that. And I just, it's like I spiraled after that. That yeah. We moved back to Georgia. We, my husband went out over the road. I basically stayed with my parents and just like sunk myself into my community to just like get help again, to like, like feel like a person again. And I don't, I could have never done it if I had been outside of that community because the drugs never helped yeah. and... I just felt so bad, like I had let my friend down. Mm. So, and I don't want to let you guys down or anything like that. So, again, I just want to reiterate if you are feeling miserable, if you feel like you are alone, if you are feeling isolated, please reach out because God loves you. We love you. There are people who care about you. You don't have to be alone. You don't. Mm -mm. I just went to a, a funeral for someone who, um, committed suicide and it was I'd never been to a funeral for that yeah and then to see his mom <sighs> just devastated and I didn't know him very well as an adult we were friends when we were kids more so and and even with that much of a disconnect I was like oh my gosh I should have I should have tried harder, you know. I should have done. I should have kept in touch. All these things. So I can't imagine how hard when it's there. That's 
really, really difficult. And so we're here. And we're here. Yeah. I'll give you another C.S. Lewis quote to ruminate over as we wrap up. We were promised suffering. They were a part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing I haven't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the things are happening to oneself, not to others, in reality and not imagination. I know it's hard out there, guys. But Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke, up, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't carry it by yourself. Give it to him. We love you all. You guys are the best. So okay. stick around after the fact. We'll have some levity after this. I know this has been a hard episode. Um, so many emotions in the mm-hmm. feels. But we have a much lighter episode next week. What are we doing next week, Elise? <laughs> so in honor of Halloween, yeah, we are going to talk about some stories from our like local stories yeah. for us. Some local legends. Local legends that we have around in our area. I don't know how scary it'll be, but it'll be a fun, like, like it'll be a fun storytelling yeah. Friday. Yeah. Because you got Bessie, right? Bessie, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, there is like a Loch Ness type monster in just about every Great Lake. That is so, amazing. I'm. I have videos. I might talk about it all uh, more than just Bessie. But anyway, we'll see. And then you have a lake that's haunted. <laughs> I know. We both have lake stories. Yeah. Uh, lake Lanier in Georgia is low key haunted. People go in and they never come out. Dun dun dun! I love it. If that's not Halloween, I don't know what is. <laughs> I don't either. So <laughs> if you want to hear more about that, make sure you t- tune in next week. Hit that like button. Forget to go to the quirk shop to get, get a, a cool dragon shirt or a pyramid hoodie. Yes. It's awesome. You guys are awesome. I love y'all. Stay quirky. And we'll see y'all next time. Oh, 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 oh,